Hello and welcome to Frameline. I'm Barbara Goslavsky. You're listening to us on RadioRegent.com, but also on iHeartRadio. I'm here with my favorite critic, Courtney Small. Hello, how are you today? Good, how are you? Oh, not too bad. Good. Well, we've got uh, a lot of films to review today. It's uh, it's uh, quite the time of year for films and openings, and it's very exciting. And we're going to start with a film that we both saw called The Price of Everything. It's opening tomorrow night at the Hot Doc Cinema. That's uh, Friday, November 23rd. I was going to say February, but that's just because it feels like February. Yes, it is very cold outside. <laughs> So The Price of Everything is a film by Nathaniel Kahn. He uh, was – his film, My Architect, was nominated for an Academy Award and uh, The Price of Everything is his latest. It's an important – I find it's an important unsettling film, very unsettling. It, it uh, goes into the art world. The, the big, big-time art world where millions and millions and millions of dollars are spent. And what it does in talking to critics and historians and collectors and a few artists is it brings up these questions, uh, important questions. How is art valued? Who gets to decide? Who's really enjoying this art? Uh, and I, I found that the results... You know, while not overly surprising, we're you know there was a there was a surprising element to it because we don't. I think the film is important because we don't really stop to think about the question of what's going on in the art world and how it affects what's going on underneath it. The trickle down from that from that market from that uh, buying and selling. It's really it's almost like a stock market. Um, because people, um, they're, rich people are using art as investments. Now, that's not surprising when you think about it, but wait until you see the film and you see the extent of this. These people are using it like a stock market, like diversifying their profiles and, and yeah, trading, buying and selling art. And some of them have, some of the collectors do have something interesting to say about the, the, the work. And some of them are, you know, trading a commodity. It's like the commodification of art to me. Yeah, it's, it's funny because it's an interesting film. And watching it, it reminded me a lot of um, the 2016 doc, 2015 uh, film called Sour Grapes. And oh yeah, yeah. All about the the wine industry, and it was a very much similar thing. And in that film, it, it looked at how this particular, um, I guess, wine cellar was using fraudulent means to jack up the prices of of his wine collection and trading the different um, bottles and selling. And very much similar aspect here. the The difference is we get multiple perspectives from the artists and I think if anything that's what makes this film even sadder in some ways because you have a few artists like um, world-renowned uh, Jeff Koons who's to the point in his career where he's so in demand that he's got a team working on his stuff so he comes up with the original concept and then his team actually does the, the big canvas paintings like he doesn't even do the work and then you have other artists who, based on um, their background or 
one guy people thought was dead and he's still working like they they're just doing it out of the the love and they hope to make money off of it but you realize that most artists don't make money off the work it's all these collectors and how the bank gets involved and it's i don't know it was a fascinating film in the sense that it made me think about all other industries like film anything where you have fandom and collecting and how easily it can be swayed just by one or two very affluent people. Mm-hmm. Well, the sadder thing about this, though, was uh, there were certain points in the film where there was one particularly telling scene uh, where there, I think it's archival footage of an old, old, old sale back in the 60s, the first time a collector decided to sell pieces from his collection, and he had dealt with the artists uh, directly. So the work had been sold once to him. And then what he was doing was reselling. And the amount that they had gone up from the original sale price to now the resale price, and one of the artists was there, and he goes up to this this original seller. He goes up to the, the guy he sold it to, and he said, wait a minute, you paid me this fixed amount of money, and now you resold it, and your profit is... And he, he he seems to be trying to to be joking, like make it a joke, mm-hmm. so it's not overly embarrassing to everybody. But you could see there's a part of him that actually means it, and I felt for him because I thought, yeah, that's right. And there are other points where the, the film is sort of reiterating and reinforcing the fact that every time it resells, that's when all the profits are made. It's the not the first sale, it's the resales. That that's when all the profits are made. But yeah, so this this one clip reminds us that that the artist doesn't get anything from that ever again. Yeah, there's a level of arrogance to many of the collectors, and I would say the art dealers as well. Because one woman um, defines like there's three types of people: those who basically see the collection, those who are told to see it, and those, i.e., the rest of us that will never get to see these these great works of art and even the term great works of art is very arbitrary you know what defines a great piece is what someone has put value on so if there's no financial value then it's not considered a great piece of art which is not always the case sometimes art moves you in a way or sometimes art finds its audience several years down the road Mm -hmm. whereas these guys is they specifically like nope this is how it is and then there's one individual who has a whole bunch of different pieces and half the time he's not even using his own money. He's using the, the trading system and he even openly admits that he's probably cheating the government out of a whole bunch of taxes. Yeah. And for him, he's just like, Oh, well, that's just how, that's just how it is for us. And it's like, this is like that type of arrogance. We're, we're seeing a lot more these days where those who have the financial means openly flaunt it and openly flaunt that they're cheating the system mm-hmm. and that's just the the way it is and there's one piece that i think he had that i think it was a, a jeff coon piece where it was like the orb mm-hmm. and yes. they went into this great detail about how this piece was um phenomenal because it's essentially it's this shiny orb that you place in front of a work of art and it allows the viewer's reflection to kind of Come become one with the 
the piece With of the, the piece, piece that you're seeing. Art. So it's the act of seeing and what you're seeing. Some, sure. It's but, conceptual art, so they, uh, we could go on for half an hour. That's what conceptual art is like. For that particular piece, they showed it, I forget, in front of which particular great work. But then when the collector had it in his own home, he had it in front of a different phone. I was like, oh, you could put this orb in front of anything and then, quote, unquote, justify, oh, that it's allowing me to. Like, you could put it in front of a family photo. And, you know, with your ancestors <laughs> and it, you're now becoming one. And I, I was thinking, like, this is just getting ridiculous. But because someone has deemed that this is influential, it's going to go for millions of dollars. And when the guy is ready to sell it, it will then go for even, even, for, more. even more. And you're Hundreds like, of millions. And right. then you see, like, the artist who, like, the woman who had a, the Nigerian artist who had a, a child recently. Mm-hmm. And she's barely able to get maybe 10 pieces out, but she wants them to be like meaningful pieces, you know, whereas some of these pieces that come out, they're just essentially being some people. Yeah. You see some people that it's yeah, it's almost like a factory like setting. And and whereas this woman who's already, you know, dealing with this life changing event is still like her, the, she's being, you know, a very careful, a careful minded artist who's like, I want, I can't just uh, put pieces out. Uh, at a quick speed just to get them out. I have to make sure that they all, yeah. And then, so going back to what you said, it's, it, that goes back to the question is who gets to decide? And, mm-hmm. and this is showing that sometimes the market decides and the market doesn't decide correctly or incorrectly. It, it, it just somehow misses some people or it, seems to overemphasize some people or some works of art uh, just because of the financial activity behind it. It has nothing to do with the value of the art. Oh, yeah. Well, I'd say that the in many cases, even the, the notion of the market decides is, is somewhat false because the market is really 10 to 12 people that are kind of controlling every aspect of it. Like there's a, a great scene and, and this applies to anything. If you collect comic books, records, um, anything where you go to conventions or places where you get quote unquote rare items, that's all being determined by five or six people who want to make profit off of, off of the whole industry. And there's a, a moment where one of the collectors, uh, I forget the name of the piece, but it was like this, essentially bodice of a of a woman where it was kind of furry and very conceptual piece and he just goes up and starts touching it you know and even putting his hands in areas that you really shouldn't be putting and he and he just assumes that well of course i can touch this piece because i am yeah, who i but am if you've been to an art gallery you know you're not allowed to yeah, touch exactly things. but it's just that you know he but in the on the market right yeah he's 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 considered one of the the top people in the market so he's allowed to do what he wants and then if he loves the piece and wants to bid a certain price he will then dictate what the rest of the people will try and and bid it for yeah it's it's a fascinating film yeah yeah and and, and thankfully there are yeah appearances by artists and artists their voices are heard. We get to see them and we hear them. Larry Poons is, is a really interesting foil. Uh, yeah, he's great. He's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, the 60s art star. He he comes in and he's got this very, you know, down-to-earth, matter-of-fact way. And he just wants to make art that's art. 
and doesn't really have a lot of time. Even when Gerhard Richter comes in and he basically, you know, points at a painting and he says, this is worth more than a house. It should not be worth more than a house. Art should not art, – art is is valuable and important, but it should not be worth more than a house. And then he turns to the camera and he says, money is dirty. <laughs> Yeah, it is. But they they give you honest perspective on on everything, and it's I don't know, it's it, the way of the world that we live in. We put a lot of value on certain things, but we never question who is dictating that value. No, no. But I give credit to the film because it does give the last word to the artist. Mm-hmm. And speaking of artists, do you want to talk about? Um, yes. Okay. So we saw? were talking about the price of everything by Nathaniel Kahn. Now I want to talk about a film that I was completely, completely bowled over. I mean, I don't know if you remember how excited I was about – it was a couple couple of shows ago. I was excited. We were both excited about transit. And uh, I know that – I predict that as soon as Courtney sees this film and as soon as all of you see this film, we will all be as excited as I am now um, – I use the word word masterpiece. I don't think I've used the word masterpiece a lot ever, right? And so I used it on when I was talking about transit and it just so happens I'm going to use it today because when it fits it fits. At Eternity's Gate, the new film by Julian Schnabel starring Willem Dafoe and it is uh, basically the biography of Vincent van Gogh. The painter. So, yes, speaking of painters, but it's a completely, you know, it's what a foil to the film that we've just been talking about. This this film reminds us of the importance of the artist. Uh, this film is probably the most sensitive depiction of an artist his, in his life and his vision. And it's it's not your standard biopic. It's, this is more of an attempt to show us his life and his work through his own eyes. Uh, the performance by Willem Dafoe is absolutely incredible. It's one of the best of his career, and it's definitely one of the best of the year, performances of the year, if not the best. Um, and he and Schnabel together are just, they create this this most unique portrait. portrait. And this is a portrait of, of a man who just so desperately did not fit in, but so desperately needed, he needed to paint. And, it, you know, as hackneyed as his, his paintings may have become, there's a lot, you know, a lot of prints made, a lot of people, you know, put the, have these posters of his works, the sunflowers everywhere. This reminds you of the glory of the original painting of the original act of painting um i'm I'm going to get probably a little overwhelmed in in just my own in just my own memories of of this film it's just it's an experience an experience of of what it was like like i said to 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 see things through van gogh's eyes and you know he he had a particular sensibility and he had a particular sort of illness it's a mental illness. Oh, so they they dive into more than just the standard. This was yeah. They, they don't, don't they don't just hit the the key points of his life that everyone. They knows. don't know. Okay. In fact, um, what what's really interesting is the way that uh, Schnabel has depicted. He's pe- chosen 
particular scenes. And in fact, if if nobody minds, I'm going to read what Schnabel said about the film. He said, this movie is an accumulation of scenes based on painter Vincent van Gogh's letters, common agreement about events in his life that parade as facts, hearsay, and scenes that are just plain invented, and all for the, for the purpose of getting us inside his head. It's, it's a very impressionistic, yes, it's going to sound odd, but it's a very impressionistic film about this impressionistic painter. Oh, but, very good. you know, I'm not just throwing that term out there to be clever. You'll understand when you see it. It's, it's a remarkable achievement, a remarkable experience, and uh, it's opening uh, tomorrow on Friday, November the 23rd as well at the Varsity. Um, but if you prefer to see it at TIFF, it's going to be there next Friday. So that's at Eternity's Gate uh, one of the films of the year, definitely directed by Julian Schnabel, who uh, made the Academy Award-nominated film *The Diving Bell and the Butterfly*, and starring the great, inimitable Willem Dafoe in one of the best performances ever. And uh, it's got appearances by Oscar Isaac and Mads Mikkelsen. Yep. So that's a really good cast. Yeah, it's an amazing cast for for just uh, an unforgettable film. Should I carry on with my excitement, or do you want to throw in? Uh, well, I will throw in real quick one film that I saw. It opens um, next week, and it's a Canadian production called Tiger, uh, directed by Alistair Grayson, and it stars um, Param Singh, and he also co-wrote the script. And it's basically a biopic on um, Pardeep uh, Nagra, who is a Sikh boxer, that I guess kind of got into boxing by fluke. He was more of a, a soccer, an upcoming soccer star, and then kind of blew an Olympic chance and through a series of events ends up at this um, boxing gym and really kind of takes to the sport. But the the problem is, is he faced a lot of discrimination and to the point where the, I guess, the amateur boxing association didn't want a, a Sikh boxer in their their ranks and try to come up with various legal ways to get him out there uh the main one being they tried to get him to or they tried to institute a rule that would have to force him to shave his beard which is very much against the the Sikh religion so this film talks about that um whole trial and events that he he went through so from the point of highlighting just how um, dubious racism can be. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, my problem with the film, though, is it's very much your standard boxing flick. So it, the film, to me, felt like a cross between um, Creed in the sense that um, Nagra was very much had temper issues and a film called Breakaway. And I don't know if you ever saw Breakaway, <clears throat> Canadian... Actually, no, I haven't seen that one. It's a Canadian romantic comedy about a um, South Asian hockey team uh, that oh they ride they're, they're like I a house league one? team, yeah. and then they enter a tournament, and Rob Lowe plays their their coach. Um, so, if you've seen that film, then you'll know a lot of the beats in this particular film. So, in this film, the the mentor and coach is played by Mickey Rourke. And 
um, the love interest is this lawyer who may have connections to Ricky. Or like when, as you're watching the film, you're sitting there going, "Well, this is going to happen." Check. Uh, this is gonna, and that's oh dear. You know, so I was kind of torn because the I think it has a very important message to to say, and when it's talking about the discrimination, it's re- it's really good, but a lot of it follows the conventional boxing trope. So if you've seen Rocky, you've seen Creed, as I said, if you've seen Breakaway, which isn't a boxing film, but it's a sports film, you know exactly what happens and it plays out pretty much the same. But even even with the racism, uh, which which probably was in Breakaway, right? Uh, yeah, break, but Breakaway, Breakaway followed a bit of that, but it wasn't as um, antagonistic. Like in this particular film, you have... The, I guess the other co-writer of the film plays, um, I guess the rival's another boxer who's just adamant that he doesn't want this guy coming in and stealing his thunder, stealing his girl, what have you. So ultimately there's going to be a boxing match between right. those two. But the strength, uh, you know, I, I, I know that you were taken by, by the strength of the message right? yes. um, in Tiger. Is that enough to compel a person to just... I would say forgive or even ignore those check marks. <laughs> I would say probably not, um, just because, as I said, those check marks are so familiar, and I feel there's other boxing films that have done it better. So I, I wish that they had played into um, the the social issue a bit more than it does. I mean, and at least if you're gonna tell a, a boxing story, try to change it up a bit. Like it, it just felt like the the writers studied Rocky, they studied Creed, they studied Raging Bull, you know, and there's nothing here that you kind of take away from the boss, boxing perspective that's like, oh, that's really unique or new. It's just... But how about the individual story? The, the, the individual story is interesting. I just feel like it's a, an interesting story in a very conventional package. Uh-huh. I got gotcha. you. So you know, you you can you'll watch it, and as long as you're you know that you're getting a very conventional store, um, packaging, then you you might enjoy it a little more than I did. Okay, okay. So I'm just going to uh, end off on a, a high note. Okay. Um, the inaugural, the very first one, the very first shorts that are not pants festival. You may have heard us talking about shorts that are not pants. As a screening series, it's been going on for half a dozen, six? I think maybe five, five years? Five, six six years, yeah. Yeah, but they used to be quarterly. Yeah, and then they went monthly, and now they scrapped all that, and they said, let's have a festival. And this is the first one. It's coming up. It starts tomorrow. It's just uh, Friday and Saturday. Um, So go to shortsnotpants.com get all the info and it's going to be at CineCycle which is a very friendly space and yeah so it was established in 2012 okay so November 23rd 24th I'm just going to tell you a couple of films because uh, there's there's three that I saw that are a lot of fun and I think this will give you um, a sense of the spirit of the festival it's, it's just a very fun casual it's shorts right so Shorts is a chance to come together and you know, watching a program of shorts is a chance to come together and celebrate a, a group of filmmakers and enjoy a group of visions that, you know, the programmer um, 
James McNally has put together into a, you know a particular package each each one there's a number of screenings like I said all all over the two days um, and it's a mix of genres so it's a mix of mood style genres and I'm just going to tell you it turns out that these are all narratives but uh, there's something to be said about a short that really knows how to take someone who really knows how to tap into a short idea they find that idea and they find the perfect length, which, you know, is often, in this case, actually, it, they all turn out to be about 18 minutes. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of, sh- and that's why, you know, you throw in all the others, because, you know, an animated film can be three, and it's just a, a great mix of stuff. So, okay, I'll stop talking about that and just tell you about these films. Souls of Totality is a U.S. film, and it's a love story about something that's going to happen during the solar eclipse is something it's it's got a lot of mystery in it it's got it's a very moody film and and a really strong sense of foreboding so it's kind of very thrilling as you're watching these two people prepare for something and then you realize uh something's going to happen with uh them and this group during the solar eclipse that's about to come and it was shot during a solar eclipse and it's very disorienting so if you like that kind of you know very moody kind of thrilling kind of aspect but also if you like Tatiana Maslany oh yeah she's in that she's in this one and so that's Souls of Totality another one uh, you know you don't have to be a Kubrick fan to like this one but it helps and Kubrick, Mr. He, to me, he's always Mr. Serious, right? I mean, the, the, the man's never had a moment of comedy in uh, any of his films, right? Uh, Dr. Strange Love is pretty funny. Okay, Dr. Strange Love. But it, it's kind of that biting, you know? Yeah. But mind you, this film captures a bit of that, but it also has a bit more fun. It's called Kubrick by Candlelight. And uh, the director, it's, it's an Irish film. The director really has a lot of fun with this, this notion um, – well, it wasn't a notion. It was he has this fictional representation of what happened when Kubrick came to Ireland in 1973. And that he was shooting Barry Lyndon. And so he decides to go to Ireland, of all places, to shoot a scene where the British Army is going after the Irish. And so what happens is this in this film it's a romantic comedy it's really it's actually a really fun romp and it riffs off kubrick nicely and it has got it's got this very self-reflexive self-reflexive films can be a lot of fun as well but the nods to kubrick are can be quite biting like kubrick himself but that's also quite fun and Mm -hmm. delightful and you'll see what happens and You'll see what happens when someone decides to bring the British Army to Ireland in 1973 to attack a bunch of Irish people. Well, just (laughs) saying Kubrick and and romantic comedy already piqued my interest. Exactly. (laughs) But wait till you see, like, the little twist. Uh, It's... uh, I don't know if it's, it's based on an actual event or if it's, like, this sort of myth of what happened when when he came with the British Army, mm-hmm. but um, anyway, it's a fun film. So another fun film, it's a Canadian film called Black Friday. I, I just had a, such a riot with this film 
the first time I saw it. It's about a young woman uh, who's working in a store. Black Friday is coming. And she remembers, well, she's trying not to remember what happened years before when her father was working Black Friday and tragedy struck. And uh, as it it does on Black Friday. Yeah. And uh, so it's it's really twisted. (laughs) This one is really twisted. And very unapologetically absurd so that's a lot of fun and uh yeah so that's shorts that are not pants go to shorts not go to shorts not pants.com and it starts tomorrow and if it's if it's anything like um the quarterly and monthly series that um james mcnally and his team have put together there's a lot of great stuff you're gonna you're gonna find there's still some shorts that i i think back to and i laugh or um, some of them have eventually ended up online because I know a lot of those times you don't get a chance to see them in a the theater, which is another reason to, to go to this festival. But th- just some of the ones in the past that have ended up online, I've I've rewatched and they're still they're still hilarious. Yeah. Or they still kind of touch that romantic part or give you the chill. So it's a good mix of stuff. Yes. I mean, so, yeah, there's chilling stuff. There's there's scary stuff. There's like real stuff. There's. There's great fantasy, the, uh, great comedy, and yeah, I've, I've told you a bit about some of the kind of absurd stuff that's going on. And um, yeah, just well, because it's short doesn't mean it's not brilliant. No, whatever your taste is in film, you'll find it. You'll find it at that festival. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so that's it for Frameline for this week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>